The Glowing Older Podcast is brought to you by Perkins Eastman, a global architecture, planning, interiors, and design firm. Perkins Eastman's team of more than 1,100 professionals across 21 offices are united in the vision that architecture should have a direct and positive impact on people's lives. To learn more, visit PerkinsEastman.com. Hello and welcome to the Glowing Older Podcast where we interview experts on innovation and senior living. I'm your host, Nancy Griffin, and I'm so pleased to be here today with Max Winters, Senior Associate at Perkins Eastman and co-host of the Shaping Dementia Environments podcast. Welcome to the program, Max. Hey, Nancy. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you. Um, Before we dig in, tell us about your background and how you got your start in senior living. Sure. Um, so I am an architect and a planner at Perkins Eastman. Uh, so my background is in architecture. Um, when I was in undergraduate school for architecture, the school that I went to, uh, the University of Maryland, the program was really focused on how does the built environment, uh, enhance the lives of the people who use it. So there was a lot of emphasis in that education on the user Um, which is a really, really great place to start in architectural education. But as a college student, the ability to connect with this sort of archetypal user, quote unquote, is pretty limited because your life experience is pretty limited. So while I knew it was really important, I was having a hard time sort of making a personal connection to that idea. But the other thing that was going on when I was in architecture school is that both sets of my grandparents, who I was relatively close to, um, were experiencing the process of aging and in some cases having encounters with what we call senior living. And so I saw a lot of challenges and barriers there that were related to the built environment. And so all of a sudden this idea of who is this mythical user really clicked for me. And I saw that the impact that the built environment could have, and especially for older adults. So that's how I sort of got interested in senior living design specifically. Um, I went on to do my Master of Architecture thesis on that topic, uh, specifically about aging and community approaches for older adults who don't have as many financial resources, especially in urban settings. Um, And that kind of spirit of research and trying to think differently about some of the challenges of senior living um, led me very quickly to Perkins Eastman uh, because they share a lot of the same values and the same sort of um, ethos about the importance of research in design, specifically for senior living design. And so I've been there for almost seven years at this point. um, And I've done a lot um, on the front end. So I do a lot of strategic planning master planning and concept design for senior living communities, uh, both existing and new, both for-profit and not-for-profit to help them kind of set their vision and then realize that vision through the built environment. And uh, that's where I am today. So tell me a little bit about Perkins Eastman. How did the company become an authority in using the built environment to change the culture of senior living? Yeah, so uh, a couple things on that. I mean, I think first of all, um, 40 years ago when sort of Perkins Eastman started and when our senior living practice started, 
just quite frankly, there weren't that many people doing it and there weren't that many people interested. Um, and so specializing in that field put us in a really unique position to be in the room for some really, really interesting uh, kind of watershed moments in terms of how the built environment of senior living has progressed during that time. So we had people who were involved in the assisted living prototype for, at the time, ASTA, which is now leading age. We designed one of the very first uh, residential dementia communities in, in the United States, uh, which was Woodside Place. We did several prototypes for small house nursing environments um, when that was sort of becoming a new idea and gaining traction. I mean, even today, we're working on a couple of things that I think are kind of similarly watershed moments in terms of the built environment. So we've always kind of been on the forefront of it just from that perspective. But I think the way that we have learned and grown along with the industry um, is not just through our own thinking, but the way we're able to interact with residents and staff members from actual communities. So we do a lot of um, repositionings of existing campuses and communities and organizations. And whenever you're doing that kind of work, that involves sort of getting your boots on the ground, talking to a bunch of different people with a bunch of different perspectives. Um, every organization has its sort of quirks and idiosyncrasies and learning all of those. But meeting residents, hearing how they use the spaces that you have designed or going to design, meeting staff members, hearing what their pain points are for working in the environments that um, you're going to design, I feel like that's where we get a lot of our kind of institutional knowledge about what works and what doesn't. So it's not only about coming up with new ideas and being kind of on the forefront as innovators, but then really putting those ideas to the test in a very real way when you have to explain it to a resident who's going to live in it or a staff member who's going to work in it. Um, I think that's really at the core of how we've positioned ourselves and learned so much about this industry over the time we've been doing it. And that feedback loop of research and innovation and new ideas tempered by the real experience of confronting the realities of an existing community or a new community or um, all of those kinds of constraints. I think that's really how we've gotten to where we are today. That makes a lot of sense. And um, one of the conversations the entire industry is having um, is how how do the how does the industry cater to that middle market the 80% of older adults who can't afford the high end communities but are not eligible for subsidized housing so talk to us a little bit about the middle market yeah no i think this is definitely sort of if you listed out the top 3 things that are big questions to solve in senior living right now i think this would probably be one of them and i, I do think we tend to kind of drift a little bit when we use this term middle market, um, and it can be a little bit nebulous. And so I, I think where the most kind of interesting frontier is in there is, so you're correctly call out, you know, it's that really big 80% donut hole in the middle of the donut, right? Um, but I think the real challenge comes in when you get towards the bottom of that kind of spectrum and you have people who are just above that threshold um, because people who are like 
mid-mid or upper-mid, they start to have some options. But people who are just above that threshold um, for low-income housing, that's, that's a really, really hard challenge to solve. So we're working with an organization in Boston who is really, really, really interested in this, um, Two Life Communities. Um, and so they, they have historically focused on that uh, lower income subsidized housing bracket and, and really making that their mission. And so their next logical progression is this one shade up uh, where you can't qualify, but you still need some some options. So they're um, they're working on a really interesting project that I think they actually just formally announced uh, earlier this week, which is Opus. Uh, it's going to be in the community of Newton, Massachusetts. And what they're doing is they have an existing um, low income housing building uh, that they own and operate, which is co-located on a site with a Jewish community center. And so what they're doing is they're adding uh, a middle market housing product co-located with these other two things. And so what that's doing is a couple really, really important things. Um, the partnership with the community center allows them to think a little bit differently about what amenities they actually need to build and develop inside of the new building. Um, because uh, from a development standpoint, that's all space that costs money but doesn't generate any money the way that an apartment does, right? Um, so using partnerships to think differently about how you build amenities is one really important strategy. Um, the idea of getting a critical mass of people physically co-located together is a really important financial tool actually to make this work. And so what I mean by that is uh, if we think about delivering care and we think about it as kind of a home health model for a second, we have uh, how that's sort of thought about and build and how you build your business plan is what are the increments and the minimum increments especially that you can deliver care in. So if you're in a rural environment and someone lives in a single family home, the increment, minimum increment of care that you can deliver to that person is the time it takes to drive all the way out there, give them the assistance and the tools they need, and then drive all the way back. And you've only delivered that care to one person or one couple. And so they've paid for that entire increment of care. But what happens when you start to physically co-locate people together is that that minimum that someone's going to have to pay for to get what they need drops drastically. So if you have 300 people on one campus, uh, the minimum increment can be 15 minutes or half an hour uh, because the, the person working just has to sort of shift over from apartment to apartment or floor to floor. And so that co-locating of people together rather than having people spread out all over a community or a town or a city is another really important ingredient. Um, so we talked a little bit about partnerships. Uh, we talked a little bit about the economic and caregiving benefits of co-locating people together. Um, and then there is, I think, a, an important design component, which I think is where people try to jump to first in this question. But uh, for us, it was sort of last, right? You had to get those other things in place to tee up 
the design component. And some of this is really, really simple stuff like just removing crown molding in the units, right? You know, and, and uh, you know, selections for cabinet types and finishes and things like that. And um, this particular product is an entry fee product. So people can still opt to add on those things if they can afford it. But figuring out what's sort of the minimum chassis to get that entry fee down as low as possible to make it more accessible um, to a quote unquote middle income person was another really key ingredient to that. So that's not exhaustive, but I think kind of three really important uh, pieces to solving this middle market challenge, which again is not an easy one, but it is a really important one for the industry right now. One of the things that you spoke about in our last conversation was the mixing um, of incomes in your projects and integrating people from different socioeconomic statuses. So why does that make sense? Yeah. So uh, if you listen carefully to uh, the description I gave of that Opus project, this is a really good example of it. So they're co-locating this middle market product with the lower income product, and they are literally sharing amenities between the two buildings and intermixing regardless of their income status. And I I personally and uh, Perkins Eastman collectively think this is a really, really important shift uh, we need to make in the industry. So uh, if you think about the history of senior living, um, it starts sort of as more of a, a very need-based uh, kind of uh, industry or product or proposition. So especially faith-based groups were focused on taking care of older adults who, for whatever reason, whether it be physical frailty, cognitive frailty, or just a lack of resources, were no longer able to live independently in the community. So it was almost completely need-based. But then as the industry evolves in the 20th century, you start to introduce different options that are a little bit more want-based or you might say consumer-driven. So I'm talking about things like independent living apartments, active adult uh, communities especially. Um, assisted living is maybe a little bit of a gray area between these two. But anyway, so as things shift to the more kind of want-based and consumer-driven options, uh, you get to the CCRC or the life plan community, which sort of seeks to try to marry those two together. Um, but the issue is when you get into that consumer-driven product or offering, obviously the financials of that become really important and the marketability of that becomes really important. So not only do you start to see a separation between organizations who are able to focus on sort of a purely needs-based uh, offering and organizations who are chasing a little bit more of a consumer-driven model that feeds the need-based care, um, but the actual physical spaces where these things start to take place also shifts. So this is obviously something I'm interested in as an architect and a planner. When you think about consumer-driven options and how do you sell an independent living apartment or uh, a life care contract to somebody, it's sort of like, where do people want to be? And as these things were getting built and conceived of, especially in the 80s and the 90s, where do people want to be is more suburban, right? So you have not only the separation of people by 
their uh, economic status, but you also have an actual physical separation of people where uh, a more consumer-driven product starts to take place in a very particular kind of greenfield, peaceful, suburban uh, setting, whereas the need-based products are sort of wherever they needed to be, including in more urban areas or less desirable um, semi-urban or suburban areas. And so that was long-winded, but the summary is basically we've unintentionally and uh, being very well-meaning, but unintentionally started to create the separation between people by socioeconomic status and also geography uh, in a way that they don't mix or interact anymore once they reach a certain age and need uh, a certain type of care or a type of product for senior living. And so to me, that's why this idea of mixed income communities becomes really important. So the people, regardless of their economic abilities, live in the same communities, interact with each other, maintain social connections um, in a way that maybe they haven't had the ability to historically and in the sort of um, canon trajectory of senior living. Yes, exactly. And um, you, at one point, um, took a trip to the Netherlands to study their senior living models, um, which led to your white paper, Missing Main Street, um, featuring the 11 patterns of innovation for dementia-specific environments, which is one of your specialties and led to your podcast, Shaping Dementia Environments. So talk a little bit about that and the white paper and the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, in the summer of 2017 is when uh, I got a travel fellowship from Perkins Eastman to visit the Netherlands with um, some colleagues and some of our senior living leadership. And I think the impetus for that trip was especially around the Hogaway Dementia Village. And so this is, for reasons that I don't totally understand, a, kind of a divisive uh, idea or community. Um, there was a lot of kind of very lightweight coverage of it in the news in the late 2010s. Um, and it was really kind of focused on, isn't it cool that there's this little main street and a place where people with dementia can pretend that it's 50 years ago. And that was sort of the premise of a lot of the news coverage. And so at a certain point, um, we as a, a practice kind of said, well, uh, this may be something, it may not, but we need to go see it for ourselves because we need to be able to talk to our clients about it intelligently and, and have an opinion formed. So that was sort of the genesis for the trip, but we saw a lot of other things while we were there too. Um, but if we're thinking about specifically about the, the dementia thing for a second, I think what we saw when we actually went to Hogaway Dementia Village is that uh, this sort of main street village model is part of it, uh, but it's kind of not the most interesting or successful thing about it. It was the philosophy that they espoused to create this community, which is essentially, instead of starting with the regulations and the constraints that are put on us by governments, health departments, et cetera, we want to start with the premise of what is normal 
and then work creatively within the constraints to achieve that. And so they did a lot of um, kind of research and development of their own. So they started in an existing, very institutional space and made incremental changes to their physical environment. And then eventually they said, we can no longer do the model we wanna do with this environment, so we need to build new. And so we saw a lot of uh, really, really important kind of philosophy and uh, visioning that we felt would be really helpful for our clients back in the States, regardless of where they were. But um, again, we sort of had this barrier of all the kind of existing awareness of Hogaway in very, very specific ways. And so uh, me and a colleague of mine wrote a white paper called Missing Main Street, where we really tried to unpack in relatively significant detail all of these observations that we've made and to start to help people understand how to apply them in a different country, in a different uh, funding context, in a different geography, and just in a different culture. Um, so that's what Missing Main Street is. Uh, it's uh, free and available to the public on uh, perkinseastman.com slash insights. Um, and it features 11 patterns of innovation for dementia-specific environments that can apply to any community, regardless of what they have now or what they want to have in the future. Um, and so we did that and uh, we were really happy with the result and it gave us the ability to engage uh, in a really new and interesting way with our clients around this topic. But at the end of that, we sort of acknowledged that this is mostly our own thinking. Um, we did some original research, we were building on existing research, but it was mostly, you know, our own opinions about things. And so uh, we were really interested in testing these ideas and expanding on these ideas by having conversations with people who are really living this. And I think that goes back to that first point about research and innovation, but then testing it against the realities. And so we wanted to talk to not designers exclusively, but also operators, policy shapers, and advocates who are really, really focused on this problem of dementia-specific environments. So that's exactly what we did. Um, we did one episode per pattern of innovation. And for each episode, we talked specifically to one operator, one policy shaper or advocate, and one designer about the pattern to try to kind of kick the tires, see what their thoughts were about it, and expand on it, the ideas a little bit. And so that's what became the Shaping Dementia Environments podcast. And it's great. You can download it on any podcast platform. Highly recommend it. What are some of the biggest myths that senior living professionals have about dementia, um, communities, and memory care? Yeah. So I think and I'll, I'll try to keep this a little bit more focused on the environment because I think that's what people want to hear from architects about. But um, yeah. I, I, I think probably the biggest one is that the primary and in some cases exclusive job of the physical environment of a dementia community is to protect the residents from themselves and from other people. So obviously, safety and security is extremely important um, 
for this population because there can be some very real and very important challenges. But whenever we, when we talk about an independent living apartment, the conversation is about experience and socialization. And in many cases, people are actually caring about the aesthetics of these kinds of environments. And that's a chief concern, again, because it is kind of a consumer driven thing. But as soon as you flip the page and you're now looking at the dementia environment, immediately everybody's mindset completely shifts on a dime to safety and security almost exclusively. And I think what we heard in all the conversations we had on the podcast from organizations and people who are really on the leading edge of this is that physical environment obviously plays a role um, in safety and security for people living with dementia. But what's way, way more important is the relationships between the caregivers or the team members and the residents. And the strength of that relationship is going to have a much, much higher correlation to safety and security challenges than locking the door to go into the courtyard. So that's, I think, a really, really fundamental myth that we're working really hard to dispel. And there needs to be a lot more kind of work done on that. So I think I started there with how the physical environment protects residents from themselves. But I think the other side of that myth is that the chief or primary role of the physical environment for dementia is to protect other people from the dementia residents by separating them or locking them away. And so again, uh, this is not a one size fits all. There are people living with dementia who function better in smaller, quieter, more private environments, absolutely. But we're taking that assumption and those constraints and applying them to everyone. And so we're also applying that to people who would do much better cognitively in group settings where they could socialize with people who don't have dementia. So we really need to work on, and if, if you look at Missing Main Street or you listen to the podcast, hopefully you'll hear this come through. We really need to work on a more nuanced understanding of safety and security and how the built environment can achieve that while still connecting people together socially, um, regardless of their cognitive ability. Yeah, so that idea of separation is is a fundamental myth, sounds like. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And um, again, it comes from a very well-meaning place uh, from provider organizations and caregivers. Um, they obviously don't want anything bad to happen to the resident, but in some ways it's kind of the easiest way to do that um, rather than a really hands-on personal relational approach to care, which is obviously much harder and especially much harder to teach. Yeah. And I love the way that you always start with the interaction and then, then the design, because um, that, that really does change the, the whole ball game, right? Yep. Yeah. I mean, uh, how people use the space and how people relate to each other socially 
that's going to drive how you design a space, not the other way around. You can't social engineer people as much as you think you can. You have to listen to them. You have to know their wants, needs, and their pain points and sort of let that organically drive the design. I love that. So what gets you most excited these days, Max? Well, sure. So uh, I think the thing that gets me the most excited is also the thing that gets me the most scared, um, which is that our little industry that we were talking sort of a little bit about the history and where we were 40 years ago, that 40 years ago was such a, a small industry. It was this little bubble we were all in where everyone was trying to do the best thing they could uh, with arguably limited resources and things like that. Um, but the resources are coming and in many ways are already here um, because of the demographic shift of the baby boomers. Senior living is now a very attractive industry to things like venture capital firms, Amazon, Google. Um, and when you look at the amount of resources and you know, really, really talented innovators that are entering the space, it's an, on one hand extremely exciting because I think it's a, a shot in the arm that we've needed for a long time. However, uh, how does a small rural not-for-profit senior living community sort of continue to exist and share the table with those kinds of people? I think is a really fascinating question. Um, and it's certainly not one I have an answer to sitting here today, but uh, to the question of, is it exciting? Yeah, I'm extremely excited to see um, how this new spotlight on senior living shakes out in the coming years and how that changes the pace and the level of innovation in the industry. Well, I'm very glad that you are part of the conversation um, with all of these new entities coming in because you certainly have a great message and we appreciate you so much being here with us today, Max. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Nancy. I'm always happy to talk about this stuff. It's uh, what gets me excited and it's uh, a real passion. So, so perkinseastman.com slash insights. The podcast is Shaping Dementia Environments. So thanks again, Max. Yep. Thanks for having me, Nancy. You've been listening to the Glowing Older Podcast. <laughs>